help yourself to lunch. James says he doesn't mind if you go and get some more while he's talking. As long as you bring me one. So it gives me a pleasure to um, invite James Bourne. So James is a senior research fellow at Monash University in Melbourne, and he's over here visiting us for a week. Um, so before going to Monash, he did his undergraduate at Imperial, and then I learned today that he did his PhD at Portland Down um, on a project between King's College and Ministry of Defence. I don't think he's going to talk about that though. No. Um, uh, so, uh, so he's been an advocate for a role in the Pulvana, um, in the connection between Pulvana and MT, sort of following down into V1, um, and he's been fighting against the tide of people arguing for the LGN. Um, and he's going to provide some data from Mobazets on that. Um, so, a role the Pulvana following early life agents on V1. Thanks, Holly. MT James. Great. So traditionally, of course, we all know this schematic that can be taught from undergraduate onwards about the origins of input from the retina to the visual cortex starting out here at the retina. Traditionally, we know the pathways going through the lateral geniculate nucleus and onto the primary visual cortex. And of course, in recent years, there's been a considerable emphasis on this pathway through the K layers of the... Oops, I should play with new toys, should I? The K layers through to area MT, and also more recently in our description of this pathway through from the pulvana, so the medial portion of the inferior pulvana, a direct connection to area MT as well. So there has not really been that much description of the pulvana. And partly that's due to this lack of understanding of the subnuclei that it comprises. So many species, it was impossible to demarcate the, these areas. So this is actually a stain from the marmoset monkey, and it's stained with the calcium binding protein, calbindin. So Cusick originally described this medial portion of the inferior pulmonar here as a calbindin hole, whereas the lateral back flanks of the areas <coughs> labelled strongly for calbindin all the way up into area P and the medial pulvana here. I will talk a little bit more about this, the emphasis of what these calcium binding proteins mean relating to Ted Jones and uh, Guillory and Sherman's work <coughs> on the modulatory and driving role a bit later. So, in essence, when we were looking at this pathway, we wanted to demonstrate that this pathway actually existed in the primate. Um, because what we'd seen previously, that were individuals had shown the elements of this pathway, so that there was actually this PIM to MT pathway, and Olvaria and group had shown that there was this retinal input as well. But none of them had actually shown that these twain shall meet. I should emphasize at this point as well is there is also debate within the pulvana about the origin of a collicular input. Some people like Bob Wurtz and that suggests that the medial portion of the inferior pulvana is also a recipient of a collicular input, but John Cass's group says that it doesn't actually project into that area, that it's going into more lateral flanks like PICM and PIP. But no one had ever clearly demonstrated that there was actually a direct retinal input to the pulvana and a dysynaptic pathway then relaying through to area MT. 
So we've done this tracing where we'd use fast blue as our retrograde tracer and cholerotoxin as our antigrade tracer in the eye where it does actually work as an antigrade tracer unlike in the cortex. Then we took our images and we decided, well, how can we actually show that these are synapsing? It was impossible to identify the labelled cells using electron microscopy. So what we decided to do was to look at the synaptic formation. Now, interestingly, within the pulvina, the synapses of these cells was actually round the the majority was round the cell body rather than the dendrites, and that's previously been described by Vivian Casagrande and others. So what we actually looked at here was we looked at our retinal afferents and those terminal fields and we labelled them with the presynaptic marker synaptophysin to demonstrate that there was actually a, uh, that they were terminals. We then looked at this localization of these in part with their projection around the MT relay cell. And what we could then do is apply the Pearson's coefficient, which actually gives you an indication of whether there is actually co-localization. And any value above 0.5 demonstrates that there's actually a clear correlation that they're actually um, synapsing together, that they're in phase, the elements. So we actually demonstrated here that they were in phase, they were above the 0.5 cutoff, and it gave us a clear indication that this was indeed a disynaptic pathway. This pathway was incredibly small. You know, that was one of the comments we got back for review, but then I'd like to say that the geniculate input is also very small. But what it did do is it got us thinking, okay, it's a small pathway, but could it potentially have a role in development of the cortex? Now, why did we think that? First of all, I just tell you why the marmosette, though, is important in this study, because all this work's done on the marmosette, and there's sometimes a bit of bigotry about the bigger boys, such as the macaques, but the marmosette has clear potential for this type of work. So, one of the most important things is that you get quite a large litter size, so you can repeat your studies quite capably through one family. A bit of an inconvenience is a low birth weight, which, and a small, so it's about the weight of an adult mouse at birth, but I'll show you how we've overcome some of those problems a bit later. So this is where you get a little bit more interested, especially when you're thinking about development. So the gestation is only 145 days compared to 165 in the macaque. The cortical lamina are completed by 133. But something that is really important is this sequel period. And this was originally described by Bogdan Dreyer. Now, this is in which you can align all mammals on a single axis, is when the eyes spontaneously open in utero as a single point in development. So they've actually been able to characterize this, that you align all mammals and you've got a similar cortical development profile at this stage. Now, this occurs very late in the month. And it's two days shy of birth. So with a birth of 145, their eyes are only opening two days before, and some are actually still born on the first day with their eyes closed. So you get this sort of understanding that you can actually analyse a lot of postnatal development here without having to go in utero. So that's a really important concept for developmental studies. One of the nicest things for me 
is the fact that they've actually got a lysencephalic, a flat surface cortex. Now, during development, especially in the macaque, this can be an obvious issue in identifying area MT, and I think that's why a number of these studies have not been able to be completed properly, because it's actually running down along the bank of the fundus of the sulcus. So it makes, whereas MT sits nicely on the dorsal surface, the brain has an isotropic growth, so you can almost model for expanding and shrinking a brain the location. So area MT sits between at the superior end of the STS, and you can actually define its region quite easily in a neonate and in an adult. So we've been very fortunate in being able to do that. So going back to the story about why did I think that it has a role in development? So a few years ago, I actually looked at the maturation of the cortex, the visual cortex as a whole, started out looking. And one thing that stood out predominantly was the fact that we identified that area V1 and NT developed at the same time. Now this is an, an unknown or an unusual phenomenon, but it got us thinking about what could be the purpose here. So what we actually did is we used an immunostaining method here. So this was actually... Oh, using, go back one, I don't know why that one wouldn't, we use non-phosphorylated neurofilament. Now non-phosphorylated neurofilament is actually a very useful marker for looking at cellular maturation here. And why that is, is it's only expressed when a cell has established its synapses and it needs to be structurally isolated. So it's almost like that internal scaffolding of a cell and it completes that process of maturation. So the only areas of birth that we identified that expressed this in the Marmoset at PD0 were actually area V1 at the most caudal extent here, which is the operculum, which relates to the first 10 degrees, and area MT. So this got us thinking about the fact that, well, during the developing cortex, we know a lot about the, the structure of these two areas. They both have a very clear first-order topography. So V1 and MT are the only visual cortical areas that have got this defined first-order topography. Could they actually be molecular anchors in the developing cortex and are involved in that establishment of the remaining visual cortex? And therefore, could this retina pulvinar pathway to MT be more instructive during the development of area MT? Now, the early myelination, of course, of area MT is also, and the early development of area MT is not a phenomenon that's exclusive to the non-human primates. It also was identified by Fleshig in 1920, where he defined this area as failed 16 in the early developing human brain that was heavily myelinated here. And then he went back, and then Watson, who was working with Zeki at the time, went back and did PET studies and analysis and revealed that that failed 16 was actually area MT. So we actually have clear evidence of this early myelogenesis of area MT in the human as well. So looking at our pathways again, that came, we came up with this hypothesis that perhaps in early development the actual pathway from the retina to the pulmonar and then its relay to area MT was actually sh stronger in the early phase of life 
and could actually be pruned back once that instructive mechanism had been complete and area MT was recipient of its strong direct projection from V1. So we then went on to look at a number of animals at, at different age points and had quite a, a good success with actually hitting area MT, which was very fortunate. So we actually went back to, all the way to PD0, did these terminals surgeries where we used exactly the same tracing technique again with fast blue, the retrograde tracer in area MT and the afferent tracer CTB488. You know, we then looked at these, we did our plotting, of course, and you could see quite clearly that at around PD18, here, that there was actually the most labelling both retinal afferents and the pulvinar relay cells. However, one of the complexities of this is the fact that we couldn't actually look at the absolute numbers. Just highlighting here again that the genicular doesn't pay a part. I don't always talk about it, but I just like to bring it in occasionally. That we looked at the geniculate as well, and there were far fewer cells relaying through the geniculate to MT than through the pulvina. But our main problem, of course, is with tracing, you get an absolute number from your study, but how do you correlate that across different ages? Your problem is that you don't know how much tracer you've injected, what layers you've got into, how many cells have taken up the tracer. So actually marrying those absolute numbers is very difficult. So we then sat down and thought about this and realised that we could actually look at ratios of input. Because what we did know is that area MT was recipient of an input from V1, the K layers of the geniculate, and through this medial inferior pulvinar subnucleus of the pulvina. So what we did is we looked at the ratios of these together, looking at the dominance of the PIM input to MT over V1 and the K layers. And what we did is when we plotted this over time, so we did this from PD0 all the way through to adulthood, we saw that early in life the pulvina had a much greater input to area MT than V1. And what happened is if we transitioned through the first three months of life up until the critical period in the marmoset, we then represented a period which was equal representation. And after this period, we started to see a predominance of V1 input over PIM input. So that was a really nice, clear story how we saw this transition through. That's why we focused on these inputs, because we knew that the input would have to be, well, we were, when we were doing the tracing alone, we always used to put a large crystal in. So we were actually, were actually covering all the six layers of the cortex, because with the fast blue, we actually injected a crystal. We were finding that if we injected the fast blue, we didn't get enough cellular degeneration to uptake the tracer, which is something with fast blue that you actually need, the necrotic zone to actually get the tracer to uptake. A couple of them, unfortunately, impinged on the white matter, so anything where there was any impingement on the white matter were excluded, but we believed that we were covering all the six layers here. But the projection layers were much more dorsal, so for that, it, we didn't believe it was a real problem. And there was no... And so the K layers of the geniculate actually projected the same layer as the pulvinus, so if we're getting labelled there, we assumed that there was an input from both. So, yeah, 
nothing, no change or transition during development of the LGN input to area NT. When we looked at the ratios of between P7 and 90 over after P90, we could definitely see this switch from pulvinar to V1 input. Now we know that during that period as well, that that's when that direct projection from V1 to NT is being strengthened as well. So it's, you can almost imagine that there's a signal once those afferents arrive at NT that is signalling the pruning of this pathway. So that led us to this theory that we, on a modified, what we call the modified anchors theory, that potentially this pathway could be instructing area MT, which is then more involved in the development of the dorsal stream areas, and V1 is more responsible for the ventral stream areas. Now, some of you might think that that hypothesis sounds rather strange, but if you imagine, with the emergence of a more complex visual cortex and the number of areas, like the marmoset alone has at least 30 different visual cortical areas, the set of instructions, both from a molecular point of view and a temporal point of view, needed to ensure that things are developed by a certain stage of development, this could not essentially be just a wave from V1. It would take far too long, I believe, for the cortex to develop. And when you consider the amount of pruning that is undertaken during development, the brain would almost, I worked out, would have to expand to around two times its normal size to enable that pruning from redundant connectivity. So what evidence do we have that this could be the case? Now, if we come back to looking at the maturation of the cortex again, looking at the labelling with non-phosphorylated neurofilament, we're just completing a temporal study where we're looking at the development of all the visual cortical areas within the marmoset. But one interesting thing that comes through is that, you know, a month in, after birth, cortical areas DM or V3A, V6, whatever you want to call it, the debate's still ongoing, but that's more mature than area V2, which is more ventral stream associated. We actually see as well that the satellites of MT develop much quicker than ventral stream areas. And also, if you look at a whole, we've got very clear indication, if we look now at this coronal view of the marmoset brain, with the labelling for non-phosphorylated neurofilament, you can see that all these dorsal stream areas, PPD and PP. V, the posterior parietal areas, are all more mature by 45 days than the ventral stream areas, ITD and ITV. Now, a number of studies, of course, have demonstrated that the, the perceptual capability of children is far more related to motion than form. A number of studies are out there that, you know, you've got that from the human work and you've already got, got it from Tony Mofshon's group in New York, where they've done this in macaques as well to demonstrate that motion recognition is there long before form recognition. And we've also got physiological evidence from the ability, you know, early life lesions of corneal lesions. There's Mike May that had um, corneal injury early in life at around six years of age in a school accident and then had corneal transplants afterwards. So he has very good capability of now recognising motion but very poor has prosopagnosia and an inability to recognise faces. And within those inferior temporal areas, there's a suggestion as well that he's got auditory responses from fMRI studies. 
leading to the suggestion that most likely early in life his dorsal stream was hardwired but his ventral stream wasn't so there's been a preponderance thereafter of other modalities to innovate that quiescent cortical region. So there's been a lot of talk of course about blind sight. I'm not going to discuss blind sight per se but we were wondering well could this pathway be responsible for that visual residual visual capacity observed in children that have had V1 lesions. Now we know that there are significant examples out there. I always show the video for Larry in the audience of the patient with blind sight, of course. But blind sight has always had that long-held hypothesis that it's an LGNMT pathway. Now that's where the evidence is coming at the moment. I know Paul, you're saying no, and I know Alan very clearly said it was the pulvinar early on, but we, Holly and I were discussing this this morning. We seem to have that early identification that it was the pulvinar. Then in more recent years, there seems to have been this switch across to, with a more clear identification of this cellular input. And of course, David Leopold's work, where they've you know, knocked out V1 and the geniculate, which I don't agree with the study, and demonstrated that there was no response in area MT neurons, it was a nature paper, so I won't contest it, but it does suggest that people are believing it more to be associated with the geniculate at the moment. Whereas in early life studies, we have a clearer understanding that there's a greater, beyond blind sight, that there's actually a greater capability of recovery. So Reinhard Wirth demonstrated in this subject that early after life it had a hemispherectomy, that in the contralateral visual field they still had visual perception, that there was only a loss of acuity, so that there was a significant amount of sparing of visual capacity. Not that I'm relating this to my work, but it's a demonstration that after significant injury there is an element of plasticity which we don't understand that seems to be improved depending on the, the younger you are. Now, a num there have been a number of cases that have demonstrated the residual visual capability in children that have had a stroke of the poster posterior cerebral artery compared to adults. Their outcomes are far better than the adults. So we understand that there is an element of plasticity there. And of course, in the case of Lars Muckley and Wolf Singer's work, in a subject that was actually born with only one hemisphere, what they demonstrated is we know that there's the contralateral inputs onto V1, they map these very clearly with fMRI, but what they were able to show is that there are actually these ipsilateral islands of the visual field represented in V1. So there'd been rerouting of that input. And again, this subject behaviorally had a small loss to their visual field and there was just mainly changes in acuity. Okay, so what did we want, how did we replicate this work in our Marmoset model? So what we did is we actually took Marmosets at PD14, between PD14 and PD18, that period where we demonstrated that there was the largest input, retinal input to the pulvinar and also the largest relay. We lesioned V1 in those animals here. We did a unilateral ablation, so just cut it out. And we also completed this in adult animals as well. 
Before any further analysis was undertaken, we left the animals for two years, so they were actually adult by the time in which we came to look at them. We completed the studies again using our tracer paradigm, and we also went on to do the tractography, which I will talk to you about in a moment as well. I love to show this, and it's great that I've got people that bow to the pole here. So the story continues, of course, that it's all geniculate. I just want to demonstrate here how the geniculate significantly changes following a lesion of V1, and I think that's what people have a tendency to forget when they're looking at this. So this is from one of our neonatal lesioned animals. As you can see, this is the whole geniculate here. This is a coronal section of a marmoset. The marmoset geniculate is slightly different to the macaque. It only has four layers, but you know, it's a geniculate. It's a large nucleus, an important nucleus of the thalamus. It's with a similar laminar structure. You can see here that globally the geniculate has shrunk, and this large degenerate zone within the lesioned, the, contra, um, the ipsilateral lesioned hemisphere. This is again labelled for cow bindin, okay? So these dots are cells that represent maybe, potentially those ones that are projecting to area MT, but there is no retinal afferent within sight here. So this is a really important concept. So you can look exactly the same level, the size. What happens to the pulvina? The pulvina expanded in size. So when we came to look at the volumetrics of this, comparing our neonatal lesioned animals here that are now, remember, adults, so the comparative size brain now to the normal adult lesions, we actually saw that they were in our, in our cohort that there was a significant expansion in the size of the pulvina. However, if we look at the LGN over here, there was a very significant degeneration. And this degeneration was actually worse in the neonates compared to the adults. And we recently demonstrated in a paper that it's following a V1 lesion, the retrograde transneuronal degeneration. Is that right? Are you happy with that? It was actually greater in the neonates compared to the adults. And already we, we did a time sequence study and we demonstrated at three weeks the... Um, in the neonate, it had undergone as much um, degeneration as what you see at the year time point, whereas in the adults, it tends to be more protracted. But even in saying that, even the adults, there was this significant degeneration of the genicular, and also significant degeneration of the optic tract. We didn't actually see any change in the cortical size of area MT, which wasn't really a surprise, but I suppose it would have been nice if it had expanded. So, looking at our tracing, this is we actually demonstrated, and we could look at the number of cells here, because in our animals, that the neonatal lesion, there was clearly an increased afferent input from the retina to PIM, which was more displaced, and also as a relay onto MT, compared to the adult lesioned animals. And this represented what we saw at that time at which we... It was comparative to the time at which we lesioned the animal, suggesting that it wasn't undergoing pruning of the pathway. No real change in the geniculate. 
And again here, this demonstrates to you quite nicely. So the green is showing you that retinal afferent input, but there is hardly any input of any retinal afferents onto these relays. So here in the middle here, I'm showing you again, like I showed you earlier, how those retinal afferent synapse around the fast blue pulvinar relay cells. When we looked at the relay cells in the geniculate, we could not find one that had any retinal synapsing around it, not even onto the dendritic harbour. It was vacant. This is an illustration of activity in that pathway. For the electrophysiologists of you there, I accept that this isn't really showing you function, but we have no way of actually demonstrating identifying an individual cell and actually work, knowing where we exactly are at the time of recording. So what we've used as a surrogate for that is the expression of CFOS, an immediate early gene marker. Now how this works is it's an immediate early gene so it gets upregulated immediately as cell becomes active. So what we can use is a paradigm in which we put the animal in the dark for 16 to 24 hours and then we expose it to light for 45 minutes. Then we sack the animal, and then we can look for the expression of this molecule and the cells it's associated with. So what we can see in area PIM here, you can see the strong labeling in cells. Whereas within the degenerate zone of the lateral geniculate nucleus, there's absolutely no labeling at all. There's no cellular activity. So we would be picking up those empty relay cells in there if they were visually active. That's what these are, are the cells projecting to area MT. And so should they be within here, within the K layers, but they're not. When we then go and look at this at a more microscopic level where we double label, we can see, yes, that the fast blue labelled cells are actually CFOS positive, and again, there's nothing there for the genicular. So, sort of just a surrogate marker of activity, but it does demonstrate that these cells don't appear to be active relaying through the genicular. So then, one of the issues we faced is originally I told you how we were looking at those ratios between the areas. We've now chopped out one of our areas, being V1. So it made it a little bit harder with the tracing to try and now get these ratios and foundations. So what we thought is that could potentially we use tractography in these lesioned animals, ex vivo. So we did in fact look at this using the traditional standard weight. We used 30 directions, a B value of 3,000, and what we were able to do was correlate this with our T2 star images to actually demarcate and see our areas. But I was, of course, not coming from a background in diffusion tractography, very sceptical of this as a modality. So what we wanted to do, first of all, was actually see if we could marry the pathways with the, what we achieved from tracing with the pathways through the DTI. Because DTI, of course, gives you a bi-directional pathway, you can't distinguish between afferent or efferent pathways. I decided that we'd actually use a different tracer, a bi-directional tracer. So we used dextran use for yellow in area MT, which is a bi-directional tracer. And actually then we took those results here and actually correlated them with the DMRI. 
And what we did is we reconstructed those and came up with a 3D model and actually clearly indicated that the actual tracing was marrying very nicely this pathway that we were observing from the DTI, which was a really nice result. So we, from our first elements of the tractography, we were very happy. So this is just a demonstration. I've already highlighted this of how we seeded it onto our T2 star images. So this is just a initial mapping of it. And we could see that the looking at it like this, this is a V1 lesioned animal. You can see on the, the left hemisphere at the most posterior pole has been removed there. We've got a slight indication from this, looking at the streamlines projecting from PIM, that there was in fact an increased strengthening of that pathway. So then we came, decided, well, is there any way we can put a quantitative measure to this from all the cases that we have? Just again to highlight that there was no change really in the genicular, but we can move on from that. So this is our models of the system. We actually described as well, because one of the problems was, and I think this is something that comes up in the human data, is could we actually define these two pathways and not get crossover of them? Was it able, were we able to demonstrate that the, the genicular and also the pulmonary pathway individually? So we actually mapped both of these out here, and we could actually identify very clearly that they're the, two, the segregation of the pathway, especially exiting from the underneath here, they're going around the most lateral bank here, sorry, medial bank here of the geniculate underneath up to PIM and up through. So the geniculate input tends to enter area MT much more anterior than the pulvinar input. So that was quite clear then that they were not collaterals of each other. So we then decided to make a measure of the streamlines coming out of each voxel on that projection, looking at the individual elements of the optic tract to area PIM, and then PIM to MT. And also in the case of the LGM, we looked at the optic tract to the geniculate and then geniculate to MT. And if we looked at the num total number of streamlines per voxel, if you look here in the middle here, you can see quite clearly that there was this greater retinal projection and MT relay here in the neonatal lesion um, animal on the ipsilateral hemisphere to the lesion. So we then took this data in, in comparison to our adult and actually looked at the ratios of the optic tract to PIM and the optic tract over the LGN input to show clear significance of this and that there was certainly an increased strengthening of this pathway. And this related back to our developmental time course in which we demonstrated that it was a stronger pathway and the figures correlated to that. So what in essence I'm suggesting is that following that early life lesion, this, there's a prevention of this pathway being pruned. And perhaps this is the route of information to the visual cortex that is supporting that improved recovery in neonates that have received a lesion to V1 in early life. So what are we currently doing? So there's a number of questions that we really want to be able to look at now. Of course, one of the fundamentals is understanding what are those projections to the pulvinar, what retinal ganglion cells actually project to PIM. And can we lesion PIM as well? It's such a small nucleus. Now, 
Alan originally de demonstrated in the macaque that it was the gamma subunit of the ganglion cell that projected to the pulvinar, but it really needs a much clearer description. So what we actually did is we've designed, a we've made a special stereotaxic frame for our marmosets here, which is MRI compatible. So we actually have a 9.4 small ball agilent stroke variant stroke no more scanner that we actually are utilizing. So what we can do is we can actually put the animal in this frame. Now this is really useful because our, we're doing this on our neonates as well. So you've got to remember that these are actually the same size as a mouse. Okay, the brain is a lot larger, but it's essentially the weight of an adult mouse. We can then scan the animal. We create, we've got ear bar fiducial markers and eye bars. We can then align our stereotacks and get our coordinates, and then we can slide this frame into our um, stereotaxic injector system and inject then into the brains of these animals and specifically target nuclei that are incredibly small, that are less than a millimetre in size. So we've had success with this already, just looking at the tracing, we've been able to use Texas Red um, to inject specifically here into the PIM. This is cow Binden labelled again, and also um, with our Texas Red injection. And apologies, but I should highlight here, as I said that I was going to mention about the role of calbindin and parvalbumin. Now, calbindin, which labels the flanks here and labels those geniculate relay cells, is actually, if you go along with, you know, the core matrix hypothesis of Ted Jones and Sherman Guillory's um, driver modulator, is actually a modulator. So those genicular inputs are actually modulatory inputs. However, the cells that are projecting to area MT through the pulvinar are actually parvalbumin positive. Now, they're calcium buffering proteins, so the parvalbumin is meant to be expressed in cells that need to buffer calcium more, they're more active. And that is actually a projection pathway. So the fact is that it looks like this pathway that's projecting through the pulvinar is actually a projection and a driver pathway rather than being a modulatory pathway, which would again suggest why you've got a direct retinal afferent onto it as well, rather than being a feedback via the colliculus or something. So we believe that there is a distinguishment between the retinal afferents to PIM and the relay compared to those geniculate cells. And you should also remember that if anyone you know, the story around the genicular input, that they could also be, those K cells could also be recipient of collicular inputs as well, or top-down connectivity for V1 to support a modulatory response back. So there's no, been no investigation to show that they're actually signaling directly through a disynaptic pathway to area MT. Going back, one of the other things that we want to be able to do is actually now, early in life, is actually lesion PIM to see what changes it has on the development of the remaining visual cortex. So in a two-week-old marmosette, we've actually successfully, in four animals now, lesioned area PIM in here, and we can actually monitor this through the um, through imaging every three or four weeks where we can see initially after the injection just in here is you see this hypo intensity and then you get this hyper intensity when 
you get a, oh sorry, hypo-intensity once you get a fluid-filled cavern compared to the contralateral side. So we know that we've hit our target there quite clearly. We've also been looking at the FA maps of these and we're seeing structural changes there in area MT compared to the control as well. And we're also looking at a new technique that's come out of UCL called NODI where we can actually look at the structure and alignment of cells in the individual layers to see if there's actually been any degeneration or not. Of course, one of the ultimate things to be able to do with the Marmoset is to look at behaviour. Now, a number of groups around the world have tried this. Andrew Derrington put a lot of his career towards this, and I think that's why he took over a career in administration, probably it killed him. But what we've had designed is a chair for the Marmoset by a group in Japan. We've started to train the animals, and they work quite well. They like to do games. They're very inquisitive. I don't know if any of you saw on the BBC recently the Marmoset, wild Marmosets going up to a TV screen and watching the TV and learning how to open a box and then a box was put there and they straight away knew how to open the box so that's on the BBC website so they are naturally quite inquisitive animals they will watch a television screen and they will do tasks so what we're having we've got set up is with the restraint chair and a milkshake banana milkshake reward system we've got the eye tracker set up what we want to do is in these lesion animals see is in the, both the neonatal lesion animals and the adult lesion animals, whether they can um, perform within the scotoma, and also with V1, sorry, the PIM lesion animals, what the visual deficit is there, if there is any, and how the cortical networks have changed. We can then go back with these animals and actually look at tracing as well. And also with Holly, we're looking at some of the human patients as well from the congenital and acquired V1 lesion animals and with Christina as well. Now we've already started looking at the pulvinate and looking at this comparative approach. Christina's had a student with Holly that we've looked already at doing a comparative between the marmoset, the macaque and the human. So we can actually see if this pathways correlate throughout the species and then again with these congenital and acquired lesions, whether there is a case for the pulmonary being involved and also potentially its involvement once again reinflaming that hypothesis as the pulmonary being the supportive pathway or the neural pathway responsible for blindsight. So I don't think I really need to run too much through the summer. I hope I've given you a bit of an understanding and reinvigorating that story on the pulvinar, which of course originated here in Oxford. But yeah, so really moving it through now and being able to really start to uncover what this nucleus is doing by performing new experimentations where we can actually look at the responses there. We're also looking at genetic tools where, I don't know if you, any of you have heard of these dreads, where you can actually genetically encode this molecule that gets expressed by certain cells. You can then inject a drug into the animal and it switches off these cells. So it's a bit like optogenetics, but optogenetics is a little bit more tricky in primates. This is more of a molecular tool where you can switch certain cell types on and off. So we're now starting to do that where we contemporarily switch off these pathways and note any specific changes in behaviour and then five hours later it's back to control level as well. So of course a great group, this was mainly Claire Warner's PhD and now Nyaki Carroll is continuing the work so thanks very much for your time. <laughs>